So I have a question for you. Are you content? Are you basically satisfied and content with your life circumstances right now? Now, you may have plans and desires to make some improvements in your life, and that's that can be good, um, to keep growing in godly character, to improve your job skills, to in your relationships, uh, to grow in other areas of your life. You have things that are good to do that you don't just sit and wait around to, to not do. Uh, <clears throat> you may be planning to get a haircut this week. You may be needing to clean out your garage. You may need to um, do your laundry. But even with valid desires to do things you need to get done and, and to enhance and improve areas of your life, are you content from the heart with your situation in life, and in particular uh, with your finances? As we continue our study of First Timothy, Paul will re- revisit what is creating controversy in the church in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And we'll also, he'll also talk about their, their need for contentment. At the end of verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul told Timothy to teach and urge these things. He said, keep teaching about godliness. That's the big theme in, in Timothy is how to, to function as the church, the family of God, how, how to live as the people of God and to live godly lives. So this is what he's going to say in verses 3 to 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Timothy chapter 3, chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of, out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with, those, with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the, away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus is our hope in all things. May we learn, Father, from your word today what it is to be content in him and to be satisfied in you. Help us by your spirit to do these things. Give me strength, Father, to teach these things according to what your word says. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So Timothy says in verse 3, some are teaching a different doctrine than he'd been teaching about godliness. What they're teaching does not agree with the sound or literally the healthy words that uh, 
about Jesus Christ that he's teaching. And, and so what he's saying is that the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness is what is what we need to be teaching. If you're not teaching about Jesus Christ, you, you don't produce godliness. So you need the truth about Jesus Christ to produce godliness. And if you're not teaching that, as he says in verse 4, he says there are some false teachers who are puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Anyone who doesn't teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the teaching that produces godliness is is conceited and understands nothing. He's arrogant and ignorant. Why would he be conceited? Because in not believing and submitting to the sound words of of Christ-centered teaching, he presumes he's wiser than God. He knows better than the Apostle Paul. Some false teachers directly reject the scriptures. Others are more subtle and claim to have new insight that others have missed. They claim to be enlightened. Others are skilled at um, taking scriptures out of context and and interpreting them in ways that fit worldly wisdom and, and fleshly desires. So in their conceit, these false teachers seek to be looked up to as having superior knowledge. But Paul says they understand nothing as far as the truth of the gospel. What uh, in the second part of verse four, he talks about these people have a, an, elf, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels over words. This is what really gets them going. They they love to argue about words. They they like word wars. Their teaching, therefore, doesn't produce godliness. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And where these things exist, where there's envy, where there's um, Divisions where there's slanders, where people are thinking the worst of each other and and constant arguing, you can be sure the gospel isn't being taught. Christ-centered teaching is not present. Sometimes these things are the result of when people major on secondary issues get in fights over things that don't matter that much. Um, Such people don't want to talk about the main and plain things of Scripture. They want to be the experts on who speculate on the issues the Scripture isn't really addressing. They love to argue and debate over these things, and they seem to love the division and disunity it creates. And Paul says that um, where these word wars produce constant friction among people who are depraved or corrupt in mind and deprived of the truth, They think they have enlightened minds, but they have corrupt, depraved minds. Because they've been under Paul's and Timothy's instruction, they they heard the truth, but it didn't stick, it didn't take root, and now they're deprived of the truth. What all false teaching has in common, whether it adds or subtracts from the gospel, is that it appeals to what makes sense to fallen human wisdom and desires. So it just feeds into things that we desire in our corruption, in our fallenness. But Paul points out, um, the, um, they, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So that's the second part of verse 5. They think that godliness is a means of financial gain. So that's another, another major motivation that the false teachers have is they, they're after money. What he and the other apostles are, are exposing about these false teachers is that they tell people what they want to hear for the sake of financial gain. A good bad example of this, or a bad good example of this, is what's what we call the prosperity gospel. 
prosperity preachers say that God promises you to be healthy and wealthy in this life if you just have enough faith. If you have enough faith, you can claim your health and wealth from God. You can, by faith, speak your health and wealth into existence. Prosperity preachers often say that you activate your seed of faith by giving money to their ministries. So you, you want to have faith? Uh, give money to my ministry, and, and that's, that's what will work for you. This prosperity gospel was created in America, but sadly we've exported it to other countries, who uh, many, of them, many of which are steeped in poverty and, and have lots of um, diseases and sickness. This plays into their desperate hope for health and wealth. When God doesn't deliver what they demand by faith, you can imagine their disappointment or devastation. A man in Kenya uh, taught this, was taught this prosperity gospel. He believed that God would only send blessings into his life and never allow anything bad or uncomfortable. He believed that anything negative came from Satan. He became a preacher of this prosperity gospel. In 2003, he and his wife lost their first child. They wondered how God could let the devil overrun them. How could he allow this to happen? He writes, Well-meaning church people suggest that our calamity could be due to sin in our lives, or a curse, or, as I firmly believe, to a lack of faith. My grieving wife and I spent months repenting of possible hidden sin. His wife became pregnant again, and she had another baby. They took home their newborn son, Robin. Uh, this man writes, When Robin developed complications, we went into frenzied spiritual warfare along with a, a wide network of friends who interceded to God on our behalf. This time we would not be caught off guard. Our faith assured us the devil would not take Robin. We called on those who gave us prophetic assurances. Only life was permitted. Death was not an option. When Robin's condition grew worse, a new prophetic word explained that his healing had now been placed in the hands of a doctor. Uh, the man says, I left home clutching my baby and seeking the hospital. At 3 a.m., the doctor looked in my determined eyes to, to declare the worst news I could hear. Robin was dead. He says, I continued propagating a, a failed system of belief that I had become, that had become for me a, a means of earning a living. I still hope to become rich through believing, confessing, and visualizing it, but it, in the meantime, faking it. Many months later, through the ministry of a, an Australian couple, he came to a true understanding of the faith. He says, the kingdom of God unfolded in my heart as I put my faith in the finished work of, of the Savior who became lovelier and more valuable to me than anything on earth. My desire for health and wealth lost its, its sway. I desired Jesus. Enthralled by Christ who bids his, his own to take up his cross daily and follow me, I now felt that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. My new birth gave me new eyes to view Scripture. Careful study cleared the, the poison of, of this prosperity gospel from my life. I, I saw 
Suffering is God's gift to fix our eyes on the infinite treasure we have in Christ. Now, it's bad enough that Americans fall for this, this false gospel. It's a travesty that uh, so many in, in impoverished nations have, have bought into this false gospel. And while most of us may not embrace it in its fullest form, we need to be careful that we don't practically believe that God owes us perfect health and wealth in this life. If we do the right things and pray the right prayers, God owes us perfect health, perfect prosperity. Now, God is good, and he does bless us with seasons of good health, and, and he does provide for us. So it's not that he doesn't do that at all. But these are not guaranteed, nor perfect, nor permanent in this life, no matter how much faith we have. The problem with the prosperity gospel is an overrealized eschatology. You say, wow, that's terrible. What is that? It's basically, it's, it's, it's saying that what God has promised for the future when Jesus returns is what he's done for us completely now. God has promised perfect health and, and wealth and, and pleasures forever when the kingdom of Christ is here in full, in the new heavens and new earth. So that's coming. It's coming. You say, but how can I trust God when he has allowed such hardships in my life? How can I trust God when he has allowed such terrible things to happen in the world? Well, the answer is you trust God because he has sent his son Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and, and through that provides perfect forgiveness for all of our sins. You have that now if you're trusting in Christ. You trust God because, because in Jesus' death and resurrection, he, he does provide for us perfect health and perfect new heavens and new earth. Perfect holiness, incorruptible bodies, and perfect satisfaction in God and his redeemed people. And in the riches and glory of the, of the new earth. So that, that's what we're, where we're putting our hope in God for. Paul says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says there is a type of gain that comes from godliness when you have godliness with contentment. The, the word in the non-Christian Greek culture of that, of that day, uh, trans, translated contentment, meant self-sufficient. The idea was you could face any circumstance by relying on yourself. You didn't need anything outside yourself. It's easy to see how Paul adapted the word to mean having sufficiency in any circumstance by relying upon God, not yourself. That's what godliness with contentment is. It's being sufficient and satisfied in every circumstance by dependence and reliance upon God. That's what Paul writes in Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. Philippians 4, verses 11 to 14 says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, Paul, when he wrote this, was in prison. So he's, this is what he's, this context he's writing this in. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be, to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being of facing plenty and, and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment needs to be learned, something you learn. 
In fact, Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Why does he call learning contentment a secret? Because it's not something that you just stumble into or automatically have or easily attain. Contentment must be pursued by faith, trusting in God's goodness and sustaining grace when you're in hard circumstances and seeking God's grace to not love his gifts more than you love him when you're in good circumstances. Paul said he was able to to be content in whatever situation he was in through Christ to strengthen him. So Christ strengthened him to, to be content in every situation. We need to ask ourselves, am I truly content in God in difficult circumstances? What being content doesn't mean is that you don't cry out to God for help. It doesn't mean that you don't seek people to talk to when you're struggling. It doesn't mean that you don't go to the doctor when you're sick. It doesn't mean that you don't um, look for a job if you're out of a job. Contentment means not turning your back on God when life is not going well. It, it means being satisfied in God more than in riches and, and health and good, and good relationships. It means not being in constant anxiety or anger over your situation. It means that even though you feel the burden of your circumstances, you keep being renewed in peace and joy in God. I love what Jeremiah Burroughs wrote. I've got this quote up here, I think. Uh, he, he was a writer in the 17th century. He wrote something called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every, every condition. In other words, it's not fatalism. You don't just... Um, despair and just give up and say, hey, I can't change anything. You actually freely choose to be content and you and you trust in God so much so that you delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal of all things. Is what he does, what he provides in your life. What God wants for your life is godliness. He's granted it to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he knows what we need to grow in godliness. Contentment is a work in progress for me in dealing with Parkinson's for sure. So it's hard to just to, to, to totally enjoy your contentedness in Christ. It's a work in progress. You constantly need to, to rely upon the strength of Christ to do it. Paul says in verse 7, what he's saying in verse 7 is Paul is, is contrasting seeing godliness as a means of financial gain with the spiritual gain of true godliness with contentment. He puts financial contentment in perspective with, his, with this saying, we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it. Steve Jobs, who was the CEO of Apple, had billions of dollars. And even with all of that, he was not able to take one penny of it when he died a few years ago. Possessions will always let you down at the most important point of your life when death is at hand. So what Paul is saying in this is don't live as though financial gain has eternal benefit. Don't, don't live as it's, it's what you're living for. As Paul said in, in verse 8 of chapter 4, godliness has value for the present life and, and for the life to come. Godliness and contentment go together because the godly person trusts God to give him what, what is good. 
He doesn't trust in money for his sufficiency and contentment. Well, what Paul says in verse 8 is, is amazing. He gives a contentment reality check. Can you and I say this? Can you and I say, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content? If that's all you had was food and clothing, would you be content? Can you imagine? No furniture, no home, no car, no TV, no smartphone, no books, no computer, no tablets, all the other toys and tools and trinkets we have. We're so sure that if we just had more money, we would be content. John Rockefeller was a millionaire. He said, I've made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. When asked how much money is enough, he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more is always enough. Another millionaire, John Jacob Astor, described himself as the most miserable man on earth. I think our economy would collapse if, if we were all satisfied and content with the basics. In verse 9, Paul says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. If you desire to be rich, he's not saying if you are rich. He'll, he'll talk about that in several verses from now. But he says, you will, you will fall into temptation. Not you might fall into temptation. You will fall into temptation. And that temptation is a snare like an, an animal trap with bait. It ensnares or traps you into many foolish and harmful desires. And those foolish and harmful desires plunge you, drag you down, submerge people into ruin and destruction. Not a few lottery jackpot winners of millions have lost it all because of foolish decisions they made. The snares they, that have overtaken them into senseless decisions and, and harmful desires. How many celebrities have been ruined, even died, due to their desire to be rich? And how many lower and middle class people, lower income people, have been ensnared by the desire to be rich? The word ruin means total ruin and destruction. And the word destruction is a standard term that for eternal destruction of the wicked. So Paul could be saying that the, the desire to be rich prevents true saving faith in Jesus from taking root, leaving the person to eternal judgment. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You say, oh, I don't want to be rich. I just want enough to live on. Well, if you make $25,000 a year, you're among the richest 10% in the world. Paul says in verse 8, is often misquoted, he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I used to hear this quoted a lot. Maybe you did too. Money is the root of all evil. Paul's not saying money itself is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not wrong to make money, even lots of money, but if you love it more than God, and put your hope in money and don't use it for God's purposes. It will lead you into all kinds of evil, even evil that you never imagined. This craving for money can lead us to wander away from the faith, turn away from Christ. 
Such people don't usually just suddenly decide to leave the faith because they love money. But as they pursue money and value it more than Christ, they wander farther and farther away from faith in Christ. People love and pursue what they think will make them happy. Those who crave money pierce themselves with many pangs, many pains. The word for pain has the the sense of great distress, intense anxiety. It's ironic that what we think will will bring happiness and contentment can, can bring us great misery, pain, and anxiety. No matter how much you have, if you love money, it, it will bring this about. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we have to ask, is God's promise that he will never leave us or forsake us? enough to not love money and and be content with what we have? Why do we need to have on our coins in God we trust? Because we recognize our trust default mode is to trust in money. Is God what satisfies you most in life? Is God what sets your priorities? Is God who you turn to and trust more than anything or anyone else for your joy, comfort, and contentment? Do you turn to God for your contentment? Are you content in God? We'll pray and we'll also prepare our hearts to give to the offering. Let's let's pray. Father, we give you praise. You've given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. I ask, Father, that my desire above all else would be to grow in godliness and to be content in what you provide in my life for that. Thank you that you've richly given to us. You've given to us, your word says, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And in, the, in that blessing, you guarantee that we're going to be holy and blameless before you and that we'll enjoy the riches of your kingdom glory when Christ returns. Until that time, Father, we want to, to, to learn the secret of being content in every circumstance and to be pursuing contentment in you and, and, and uh, pursuing all that you have for us in Christ, living and delighting in you and being satisfied in you above all things. Father, I thank you for this church family who generously gives to your work. And so we, we Father, have the opportunity to, to show that we, we can be trusted, we can be faithful in our use of money, not just what we give to the ministry of Harvest, but in part because we do trust that you're using the funds that we provide through, through our gifts here for the sake of growing the presence of the gospel in our community, growing us up in Christ, spreading your work of mercy and mission throughout the nations. So thank you, Father, for giving us and trusting to us what we can use for your kingdom. 
May we delight and find satisfaction in you. May we, may we be content in what you provide for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.